Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David House. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times viewed through the lens of writer William Soroy. And this week, we're joined by Fresno poet and writer Kenneth Chacon. He's the author of The Cholo Who Said Nothing and Other Poems, issued by Turning Point Publications. He's a native of Fresno and teaches English at Fresno City College. Kenneth, welcome. Thank you, David. And Mark Arax, welcome to you as well. David, thanks a lot. This is going to be fun. Uh, Kenneth, you're a Fresno boy. Let's talk about neighborhoods, because I grew up in the east side of town off of Tulare and then Chestnut and Olive, and then uh, and then we moved to the good side of town where all the figs were being uprooted and people were building houses. Tell me about what part of town you grew up in. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a single-parent household with my mama. Uh, we lived on Bullard and Blackstone. There's a little neighborhood that's right there. It still exists today, although it's kind of buried by the U-Haul and the Boston Market. But that neighborhood, um, it got split in half when 41 was extended north. But both sides of my family are from the little barrio called uh, Pinedale, which I'm sure oh, you're yeah. familiar with. That's definitely a, a, a tight-knit neighborhood, and, and both sides of my family are from there. Got a lot of family there. Yeah, Pinedale's a. I, I've always been fascinated with that place because it's managed to hold on to a, a lot of its roots, uh, defiantly yeah. so almost. I, I remember um, I was uh, 18, 19. I had some beer cans in my car and I got busted for open container. And I went in front of the judge and he gave me three options of public service. I can't remember what two of them were, but the third one was. Would you like to volunteer 30 hours at the the Pinedale Boys Club? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Pinedale wasn't so far from, from the fig orchards where I grew up. So um, went there and really got to know the kids in the community, played billiards with a lot of kids. Uh, I grew up on a billiard table that my dad had at his bar. And um, then I brought some boxing gloves there and we had um, you know boxing matches. So and when the 30 hours were up, I stayed. I stayed for another uh, a month or two. Yeah, just a really interesting neighborhood. Yeah. You know, I didn't actually grow up there. Like, I never lived there, but I would stay summers with my grandma. You know, she would uh, she would take care of me and while well, my mom went to work. And so, actually, I had two grandmothers who lived right next to each other, pretty much. You know, both sides of my family, like I said. Did they get along? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, there was kind of a, a messy divorce involved, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. but, but, you know, I mean, they, they weren't unfriendly, but, you know, mom and dad, on the other hand, maybe they were a little bit more unfriendly. <laughs> well, tell me about your family produced not just you, the poet, but you have an older brother who's uh, teaching at the yeah. University of Texas, El Paso, the literature department. He's a writer. Daniel, tell me about growing up. How does one family produce two writers? You know, I, I grew up with my mom and uh, mostly with Daniel, uh, who I called, I affectionately call Danny, although I don't think he likes it, but oh well, Danny. Danny's about 13 or 14 years older than I am. At a young age, I think he got involved in acting. And I think there was a natural progression to literature, you know, the, the performance of language. And so he kind of changed from acting uh, during his time at Fresno State to writing fiction. And so he was always sharing basically works of art, uh, you know, writing, literature, novels, works of nonfiction. And he's really the one who had such a profound influence on me. And he's the one who kind of like introduced me to some of our greatest local writers and, and local talent. 
I got to tell you, he's a genius and he's just really talented. I'm, I'm very thankful yeah. to have him as a brother. He's taught me so much of what I know. Talk about your dad and mom. I know you guys lived apart, but your dad had, uh, you know, really shaped your life too and what he did. I mean, he was yeah. ahead of his time in a way. Yeah, you know, I didn't have the best relationship with my dad growing up. My dad battled with alcoholism most of his life. So a lot of my memories are tainted with him kind of drunk on the floor, you know, asking him to give me a hug or a kiss. But aside from that, he was just a, he was brilliant. And he was one of the first uh, Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, who got a two-year degree from Fresno City College. And I, I, it was in some sort of mechanical engineering. And he actually got a nice, cushy government job. And, and I'm telling you, this guy would build these creative inventions. Like, he would build things in the backyard. And, and they were just so brilliant. But the only thing was is that he never completed them. He'd get bored with something, and then he'd go to something else. And so... You know, on one hand, he was brilliant, but I think a lot of his own personal demons prevented him from really creating something that that would have lasted or that was meaningful. And I always grew up hearing stories of how he invented something or he thought of it and he would do the prototype in the front yard. And then my mom would say, oh, that's a dumb idea. You know, I, I think he put on a, a, a back windshield wiper on a, a wagon they had. And at that time, there were no windshield wipers on the back of the wagons, you know, that back window. And he had yeah. actually wired one up and my mom was really upset at him because he kind of ruined the car. And he goes, no, but this is a great idea for rain. <laughs> Anyways, years later, they're driving down the street and they see a wagon with a back windshield wiper. And he's like, see, woman, I told you we could have been millionaires. <laughs> and so he was always kind of inventing these things that were great ideas. It's, it's just, a, you know, we're all human and he didn't have a lot of follow through. But I love him. So, you know? yeah, yeah. So uh, it. That's where the creativity then comes from, from that side and the other side too. Uh, um, so, yeah. But yeah. two riders from one family, that's pretty special. Kenny, you had some, a, a tough road too. Let's talk about that. I know you had some involvement in Fresno gangs and you had a whole kind of story of salvation, a journey towards salvation. So, uh, I, I think I told you, you know, I grew up with my mom and I was the biggest mama's boy. And I, I say this at almost every reading I've ever been to. So for people who have heard this before, forgive me, but she died when I was 13 and I was just devastated. And I had a lot of just internalized anger and just, uh, you know, frustration. I mean, a 13 year old, you know, young adult male growing up in the world, trying to figure out his place. And when my mom died, I just had no direction. I kind of bounced around. I was homeless for a while. And, uh, you know, just that anger kind of led to a life of gang involvement. And so it kind of began with the idea, because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I didn't grow up with a lot of cultura, you know, culture or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. So the way that I tried to embrace my identity, my heritage, my ethnicity, was through the gang. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to bring glory to any sort of local gang, but I was a member of the Fresno Bulldogs, who, of course, people, you know, usually have strong opinions on. And I tried to find my identity through that. My brother always introduced me to literature, and he, he introduced me to some literature that was considered, I, I would think, like revolutionary. You know, yeah. the idea of like a, an Aslan, you know, like a repatriation of the Southwest. And I grew up with these really, really kind of militant ideas and I think that that just naturally progressed into acting out on the streets, acting crazy on the streets. And unfortunately, one of the major pastimes of gangs is, you know, drug involvement. And uh, it started off as sales, but then it became 
and abuse, you know, drug abuse. And so I, I suffered through drug abuse through, through much of my uh, teenage years. You know, I, I put it upon myself. And I think that that just led me to such complete darkness that I was just looking for any sort of light. I ended up having two children at a very young age, I think by the end of 19, uh, by the age of 19. And, uh, you know, I just had no direction, just wasn't living a good lifestyle. And, you know, I, I was searching for salvation, for some something to take me out of it. I got that through two means. And the first mean was through literature, you know, through yeah. writing. And I did a lot of writing. I did what I didn't know was poetry, but now I've come to understand was poetry. And, uh, you know, I used to have my little cholo graffiti writing, my handwriting, and I would write these poems that I didn't know were poems. And I think that that was just some of the best therapy. Years later, I, I ended up getting involved with the evangelical church, which was both a blessing and a curse, if I can be quite honest. On one hand, it was a blessing because one of the things that, uh, you know, the, the evangelical Christian church teaches is that we're all children of God. And we're all part of this, you know, I don't want to say brotherhood, I'll say, you know, humanhood, you know, we're all part of this humanity, and that God loves each and every one of us, and that each and every one of us has something special to offer the world. However, some of the negative negativity is you must shed your previous identity. Instead of being a Chicano, now you're a Christian. And so I kind of dealt with that duality, uh, you know, looking for light, looking for something to believe in greater than myself. So I credit a lot of my background with the, with the church as bringing me to where I am now, but it definitely didn't come without some, some caveats, if I can put it that way. So much of your poetry is about the streets and your struggle and coming up. I wanted you to read the, the poem that you wrote to your son, Ezekiel. What was the inspiration for it? So I think putting this book together was like this huge wake-up call, because after my mom died... I basically blocked her out of my memory and out of, uh, you know, the way that I saw the world. So when people would ask me, you know, how I felt or, you know, my memories of my mom, I would tell them, you know, I, I don't really remember her. Like I just completely blocked out her memory. And so when I was putting this together, trying to search for that light, trying to search for that meaning, that purposefulness, I began to realize that it was a lie. It was a complete lie that the death of my mother had absolutely affected me. And so I was afraid of my son dying or uh, of me dying before I could really have a conversation with my son. So I wanted to leave this for him. So that way he wouldn't be so stricken if I should die. And he wouldn't be as devastated as I was when my mom died. So it was kind of like a, you know, very kind of morose and melancholy but at the same time, wanting him to look for that light, that hope, that purpose. I'd love to hear it. Can you read some from that poem? I would love to. Thank you. To Ezekiel Robert Chacon. Listen to me. You see, I'm weak. I'm dying. Or maybe I'm already dead. Whatever the case, there is nothing more important than what I'm about to tell you, mijo. We die. Every day we die. And that's your earthly inheritance. We die on wedding nights spent in pink motel rooms, lying next to a stranger who says they will love us forever, our skins smelling like gentle bubbles and $20 bills. We die while at war, while warring, while praying for peace to return like a Christmas ornament we had forgotten about. We die with catheters pinned to us like carnations. 
We die with haircuts we never should have paid for, and with yesterday's underwear clinging to us like chewing gum. We die in beds and living rooms, in seven-car pile-ups, our bodies spilling out over the road like salt over meat. When I was a child, I watched my own mother, your grandmother, pour small piles of salt into her palm and then lick it up as if she were a young, eager lamb being fed by the hand of a child in a petting zoo. Months later, I watched that same woman disappear into her eyelids and into her cheekbones, and her stomach turned into a pair of harpsichords, her ribs springing from her as if they would become wings. She was dying, my own mother, cancer nipping at her heels the way I had done 12 years before as a hot-tempered child, much like you are now as I write this, the way I'll always remember you, fighting at your mother's breast, your face as crimson as a gunshot wound. Beautiful. Yeah, it seems particularly relevant, that poem, because so much of what Soroyan wrote about was about living, not dying. I mean, he had a book called Not Dying. He had a book called Obituaries. This man was obsessed with, with dying and, 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 and living before you died. You're going to read 70,000 Assyrians for us. What drew you to that story? Had you read it before? You know what? I hadn't read it before I was approached to do this. So I, I Googled it, and it was one of the first stories that came up. And I read it just, you know, just saying, well, let's see what it's like. And man, I was just so astounded at how much relevance it has to, you know, not only um, my own creative process, because I am trying to produce a novel right now, and it's going extremely slowly. It is progressing. And I notice a lot of the same things that I'm trying to achieve in my writing that Soroyan is, he's doing so very well. But then when it started to talk about things like mobs and like not believing in race, not believing in governments, and, and uh, I just thought, man, this is so relevant to our world today. And so that was one of the main things that just kind of pulled me by the collar and said, read me. Well, Kenny, I, I want to hear it. So uh, please read it for us. Let's listen now as Fresno writer Kenneth Chacon reads William Soroyan's 70,000 Assyrians. 70,000 Assyrians by William Soroyan. I hadn't had a haircut in 40 days and 40 nights, and I was beginning to look like several violinists out of work. You know the look. Genius gone to pot and ready to join the Communist Party. We barbarians from Asia Minor are hairy people. When we need a haircut, we need a haircut. It was so bad I had outgrown my only hat. I am writing a very serious story perhaps one of the most serious I shall ever write. That is why I am being flippant. Readers of Sherwood Anderson will begin to understand what I am saying after a while. They will know that my laughter is rather sad. I was a young man in need of a haircut, so I went down to 3rd Street, San Francisco, to the Barber College for a 15-cent haircut. 3rd Street below Howard is a district. Think of the Bowery in New York. Main Street in Los Angeles. Think of old men and boys out of work, hanging around, smoking Bull Durham, talking about the government, waiting for something to turn up, simply waiting. It was a Monday morning in August, and a lot of the tramps had come to the shop to brighten up a bit. 
The Japanese boy who was working over the free chair had a waiting list of eleven. All the other chairs were occupied. I sat down and began to wait. Outside, as Hemingway would say, haircuts were four bits. I had twenty cents and a half pack of Bull Durham. I rolled a cigarette, handed the pack to one of my contemporaries who looked in need of nicotine, and inhaled the dry smoke, thinking of America, what was going on politically, economically, spiritually. My contemporary was a boy of sixteen. He looked Iowa, splendid potentially, a solid American, but down, greatly down in the mouth. Little sleep, no change of clothes for several days, a little fear, etc. I wanted very much to know his name. A writer is always wanting to get the reality of faces and figures. Iowa said, I just got in from Salinas, no work in the lettuce fields, going north now, to Portland, try to ship out. I wanted to tell him how it was with me, rejected story from Scribner's, rejected essay from the Yale Review, no money for decent cigarettes, worn shoes, old shirts, but I was afraid to make something of my own troubles. A writer's troubles are always boring, a bit unreal. People are apt to feel, well, who asked you to write in the first place? A man must pretend not to be a writer. I said, good luck, North. Iowa shook his head. I know better. Give it a try anyway. Nothing to lose. Fine, boy. Hope he isn't dead. Hope he hasn't frozen. Mighty cold these days. Hope he hasn't gone down. He deserved to live. Iowa, I hope you got work in Portland. I hope you are earning money. I hope you have rented a clean room with a warm bed in it. I hope you are sleeping nights, eating regularly, walking along like a human being, being happy. Iowa, my good wishes are with you. I have said a number of prayers for you. All the same, I think he is dead by this time. It was in him the day I saw him, the low, malicious face of the beast, and at the same time all the theaters in America were showing, over and over again, an animated film cartoon in which there was a song called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? And that's what it amounts to. People with money laughing at the death that is crawling slyly into boys like young Iowa, pretending that it isn't there, laughing in warm theaters. I have prayed for you, Iowa, and I consider myself a coward. By this time he must be dead, and I am sitting in a small room talking about him, only talking. I began to watch the Japanese boy who was learning to become a barber. He was shaving an old tramp who had a horrible face, one of those faces that emerged from years and years of evasive living, years of being unsettled, of not belonging anywhere, of owning nothing. And the Japanese boy was holding his nose back, his own nose, so that he would not smell the old tramp. A trivial point in a story, a bit of data with no place in a work of art, nevertheless I put it down. A young writer is always afraid of some significant fact that may escape him. He is always wanting to put in everything he sees. I wanted to know the name of the Japanese boy. I am profoundly interested in names. I have found that those that are unknown are the most genuine. Take a big name like Andrew Mellon. 
I was watching the Japanese boy very closely. I wanted to understand from the way he was keeping his sense of smell away from the mouth and nostrils of the old man what he was thinking, how he was feeling. Years ago, when I was seventeen, I pruned vines in my uncle's vineyard north of Sanger in the San Joaquin Valley, and there were several Japanese working with me. Yoshio Enomoto, Hideo Suzuki, Katsumi Sujimoto, and one or two others. These Japanese taught me a few simple phrases, hello, how are you, fine day, isn't it, goodbye, and so on. I said in Japanese to the barber student, how are you? He said in Japanese, very well, thank you. Then, in impeccable English, do you speak Japanese? Have you lived in Japan? I said, unfortunately, no. I am able to speak only one or two words. I used to work with Yoshio Enomoto, Hideo Suzuki, Katsumi Sujimoto. Do you know them? He went on with his work, thinking of the names. He seemed to be whispering, Enomoto, Suzuki, Sujimoto. He said, Suzuki, small man. I said, yes. He said, I know him. He lives in San Jose now. He is married now. I want you to know that I am deeply interested in what people remember. A young writer goes out to places and talks to people. He tries to find out what they remember. I am not using great material for a short story. Nothing is going to happen in this work. I am not fabricating a fancy plot. I am not creating memorable characters. I am not using a slick style of writing. I am not building up a fine atmosphere. I have no desire to sell this story or any story to the Saturday Evening Post or to Cosmopolitan or to Harper's. I am not trying to compete with the great writers of short stories, men like Sinclair Lewis and Joseph Hergesheimer and Zane Grey, men who really know how to write, how to make up stories that will sell, rich men, Men who understand all the rules about plot and character and style and atmosphere and all that stuff. I have no desire for fame. I am not out to win the Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize or any other prize. I am out here in the far west in San Francisco, in a small room on Carl Street, writing a letter to common people, telling them in simple language things they already know. I am merely making a record. So if I wander around a little, it is because I am in no hurry and because I do not know the rules. If I have any desire at all, it is to show the brotherhood of man. This is a big statement and it sounds a little precious. Generally, a man is ashamed to make such a statement. He is afraid sophisticated people will laugh at him. But I don't mind. I'm asking sophisticated people to laugh. That is what sophistication is for. I do not believe in races. I do not believe in governments. I see life as one life at one time, so many millions simultaneously, all over the earth. Babies who have not yet been taught to speak any language are the only race of the earth, the race of man. All the rest is pretense, what we call civilization, hatred, fear, desire for strength. But a baby? is a baby, and the way they cry, there you have the brotherhood of man, babies crying. 
We grow up and we learn the words of a language, and we see the universe through the language we know. We do not see it through all languages or through no language at all, through silence, for example. And we isolate ourselves in the language we know. Over here, we isolate ourselves in English, or American as Mencken calls it. All the eternal things in our words. If I want to do anything, I want to speak a more universal language. The heart of man, the unwritten part of man, that which is eternal and common to all races. Now I am beginning to feel guilty and incompetent. I have used all this language and I am beginning to feel that I have said nothing. This is what drives a young writer out of his head, this feeling that nothing is being said. Any ordinary journalist would have been able to put the whole business into a three-word caption. Man is man, he would have said, something clever, with any number of implications. But I want to use language that will create a single implication. I want the meaning to be precise, and perhaps that is why the language is so imprecise. I am walking around my subject, the imprecision I want to make. And I am trying to see it from all angles so that I will have a whole picture, a picture of wholeness. It is the heart of man that I am trying to imply in this work. Let me try again. I hadn't had a haircut in a long time, and I was beginning to look seedy. So I went down to the barber college on 3rd Street, and I sat in a chair. I said, leave it full in the back. I have a narrow head, and if you do not leave it full in the back, I will go out of this place looking like a horse. Take as much as you like off the top. No lotion, no water, comb it dry. Reading makes a full man, writing a precise one, as you see. This is what happened. It doesn't make much of a story, and the reason is that I have left out the barber, the young man who gave me the haircut. He was tall. He had a dark, serious face, thick lips on the verge of smiling but melancholy, thick lashes, sad eyes, a large nose. I saw his name on the card that was posted on the mirror, Theodore Badal. A good name, genuine, a good young man, genuine. Theodore Badal began to work on my head. A good barber never speaks until he has been spoken to, no matter how full his heart may be. That name, I said, Badal, are you an Armenian? I am an Armenian. I have mentioned this before. People look at me and begin to wonder, so I come right out and tell them, I am an Armenian, I say. Or they read something I have written and begin to wonder, so I let them know, I am an Armenian, I say. It is a meaningless remark, but they expect me to say it, so I do. I have no idea what it's like to be an Armenian, or what it's like to be an Englishman, or a Japanese, or anything else. I have a faint idea what it's like to be alive. This is the only thing that interests me greatly. This and tennis. I hope someday to write a great philosophical work on tennis, something on the order of death in the afternoon, but I am aware that I am not yet ready to undertake such a work. I feel that the cultivation of tennis on a large scale among the peoples of the earth will do much to annihilate racial differences, prejudices, hatred, etc. Just as soon as I have perfected my drive and my lob, I hope to begin my outline of this great work. It may seem to some sophisticated people that I am trying to make fun of Hemingway, 
I am not. Death in the afternoon is a pretty sound piece of prose. I could never object to it as prose. I cannot even object to it as philosophy. I think it is finer philosophy than that of Will Durant and Walter Pitkin. Even when Hemingway is a fool, he is at least an accurate fool. He tells you what actually takes place, and he doesn't allow the speed of an occurrence to make his exposition of it hasty. This is a lot. It is some sort of advancement for literature. To relate leisurely the nature and mean of that which is very brief in duration. Are you an Armenian? I asked. We are a small people, and whenever one of us meets another, it is an event. We are always looking around for someone to talk to in our language. Our most ambitious political party estimates that there are nearly two million of us living on the earth, but most of us don't think so. Most of us sit down and take a pencil and a piece of paper, and we take one section of the world at a time, and imagine how many Armenians at the most are likely to be living in that section, and we put the highest number on the paper, and then we go to another section, India, Russia, Soviet Armenia, Egypt, Italy, Germany, France, America, South America, Australia, and so on. And after we add up our most hopeful figures, the total comes to something a little less than a million. Then we start to think how big our families are, how high our birth rate, and how low our death rate, except in times of war when massacres increase the death rate. And we begin to imagine how rapidly we will increase if we are left alone a quarter of a century, and we feel pretty happy. We always leave out earthquakes, wars, massacres, famines, etc., and it is a mistake. I remember the Near East relief drives in my hometown. My uncle used to be our orator, and he used to make a whole auditorium full of Armenians weep. He was an attorney, and he was a great orator. Well, at first the trouble was war. Our people were being destroyed by the enemy. Those who hadn't been killed were homeless and they were starving. Our own flesh and blood, my uncle said, and we all wept. And we gathered money and sent it to our people in the old country. Then after the war, when I was a bigger boy, we had another Near East relief drive and my uncle stood on the stage of the civic auditorium of my hometown and he said, Thank God this time it is not the enemy but an earthquake. God has made us suffer. We have worshipped him through trial and tribulation, through suffering and disease and torture and horror and... My uncle began to weep, began to sob, through the madness of despair. And now he has done this thing, and still we praise him, still we worship him. We do not understand the ways of God. And after the drive, I went to my uncle and I said, Did you mean what you said about God? And he said, That was oratory. We've got to raise money. What God? It is nonsense. And when you cried, I asked, and my uncle said, That was real. I could not help it. I had to cry. Why, for God's sake, why must we go through all this goddamn hell? What have we done to deserve all this torture? Man won't let us alone. God won't let us alone. Have we done something? Aren't we supposed to be pious people? What is our sin? I am disgusted with God. I am sick of man. 
The only reason I am willing to get up and talk is that I don't dare keep my mouth shut. I can't bear the thought of more of our people dying. Jesus Christ, have we done something? I asked Theodore Badal if he was an Armenian. He said, I am an Assyrian. Well, it was something. They, the Assyrians, come from our part of the world. They had noses like our noses, eyes like our eyes, hearts like our hearts. They had a different language. When they spoke, we couldn't understand them, but they were a lot like us. It wasn't quite as pleasing as it would have been if Badal had been an Armenian, but it was something. I am an Armenian, I said. I used to know some Assyrian boys in my hometown. Uh, Joseph Sargis, Nito Elia, Tony Sela. Do you know any of them? Joseph Sargis. I know him, said Badal. The others I do not know. We lived in New York until five years ago. Then we came out west to Turlock. Then we moved up to San Francisco. Nito Elia, I said, is captain in the Salvation Army. I don't want anyone to imagine that I am making anything up or that I am trying to be funny. Tony Sela, I said, was killed eight years ago. He was riding a horse and he was thrown and the horse began to run. Tony couldn't get himself free. He was caught by a leg and the horse ran around and around for a half an hour and then stopped. And then when they went to get up to Tony, he was dead. He was 14 at the time. I used to go to school with him. Tony was a very clever boy, very good at arithmetic. We began to talk about the Assyrian language and the Armenian language, about the old world, conditions over there, and so on. I was getting a 15-cent haircut, and I was doing my best to learn something at the same time, to acquire some new truth, some new appreciation of the wonder of life, the dignity of man. Man has a great dignity. Do not imagine that he has not. Badal said, I cannot read Assyrian. I was born in the old country, but I want to get over it. He sounded tired, not physically, but spiritually. Why, I said, why do you want to get over it? Well, he laughed, simply because everything is washed up over there. I am repeating his words precisely, putting in nothing of my own. We were a great people once, he went on, but that was yesterday, the day before yesterday. Now we are a topic in ancient history. We had a great civilization. They're still admiring it. Now I'm in America learning how to cut hair. We're washed up as a race. We're through. It's all over. Why should I learn to read the language? We have no writers. We have no news. Well, there is a little news. Once in a while, the English encourage the Arabs to massacre us. That is all. It's an old story. We know all about it. The news comes over to us through the Associated Press, anyway. These remarks were very painful to me, an Armenian. I had always felt badly about my own people being destroyed. I had never heard an Assyrian speaking in English about such things. I felt great love for this young fellow. Don't get me wrong. There is a tendency these days to think in terms of pansies whenever a man says that he has affection for man. I think now that I have affection for all people, even for the enemies of Armenia, whom I have so tactfully not named. Everyone knows who they are. I have nothing against any of them because I think of them as one man living one life at a time. 
and I know, I am positive, that one man at a time is incapable of the monstrosities performed by mobs. My objection is to mobs only. Well, I said, it is much the same with us. We too are old. We still have our church. We still have a few writers, Aharonian, Isahakian, a few others, but it is much the same. Yes, said the barber, I know. We went in for the wrong things. We went in for the simple things, peace and quiet and families. We didn't go in for machinery and conquest and militarism. We didn't go in for diplomacy and deceit and the invention of machine guns and poison gases. Well, there is no use in being disappointed. We had our day, I suppose. We are hopeful, I said. There is no Armenian living who does not still dream of an independent Armenia. Dream? said Badal. Well, that is something. Assyrians cannot even dream anymore. Why, do you know how many of us are left on earth? Mm, two or three million, I suggested. Seventy thousand, said Badal. That is all. Seventy thousand Assyrians in the world, and the Arabs are still killing us. They killed seventy of us in a little uprising last month. There was a small paragraph in the paper. Seventy more of us destroyed. We'll be wiped out before long. My brother is married to an American girl, and he has a son. There is no more hope. We are trying to forget Assyria. My father still reads a paper that comes from New York, but he is an old man. He will be dead soon. Then his voice changed. He ceased speaking as an Assyrian and began to speak as a barber. Have I taken enough off the top? he asked. The rest of the story is pointless. I said so long to the young Assyrian and left the shop. I walked across town four miles to my room on Carl Street. I thought about the whole business, Assyria and this Assyrian, Theodore Badal, learning to be a barber, the sadness of his voice, the hopelessness of his attitude. This was months ago, in August, but ever since I have been thinking about Assyria and I have been wanting to say something about Theodore Badal, a son of an ancient race, himself youthful and alert, yet hopeless. Seventy thousand Assyrians, a mere seventy thousand of that great people, and all the others quiet in death, and all the greatness crumbled and ignored, and a young man in America learning to be a barber, and a young man lamenting bitterly the course of history. Why don't I make up plots and write beautiful love stories that can be made into motion pictures? Why don't I let these unimportant and boring matters go hang? Why don't I try to please the American reading public? Well, I am an Armenian. Michael Arlen is an Armenian too. He is pleasing the public. I have great admiration for him, and I think he has perfected a very fine style of writing and all that but I don't want to write about the people he likes to write about. Those people were dead to begin with. You take Iowa and the Japanese boy and Theodore Badal the Assyrian. Well, they may go down physically, like Iowa, to death, or spiritually, like Badal, to death, but they are of the stuff that is eternal in man, and it is this stuff that interests me. You don't find them in bright places making witty remarks about sex and trivial remarks about art. 
You find them where I found them, and they will be there forever. The race of man, the part of man, of Assyria as much as of England, that cannot be destroyed. The part that massacre does not destroy. The part that earthquake and war and famine and madness and everything else cannot destroy. This work is in tribute to Iowa, to Japan, to Assyria, to Armenia, to the race of man everywhere, to the dignity of that race, the brotherhood of things alive. I am not expecting Paramount Pictures to film this work. I am thinking of 70,000 Assyrians, one at a time, alive, a great race. I am thinking of 70,000 Assyrians, one at a time, alive, a great race. I am thinking of Theodore Badal, himself, 70,000 Assyrians and 70 million Assyrians, himself, Assyria, and man, standing in a barber shop in San Francisco in 1933 and being still himself, the whole race. That was a beautiful read, Kenny. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. I, I absolutely love to read that story and just the ebb and flow. It's, it's fantastic. You know, there are still Assyrians. I mean, if you, if, when you read that story, you think they might have all disappeared. But I remember driving up Highway 99 up to Turlock and Ceres and, and finding 15,000 Assyrians living in that corner of Stanislaw County. And it was a weird little story I was doing on them for the LA Times. I think it was back in 2003. And I did a little research, and I believe I read Soroyan's story before I went out there. This is one of the world's oldest civilizations. They were vanquished in like 612 BC and just dispersed across the globe. And there they were living, you know, amid the, uh, the nut trees of Stanislaus. And I met this guy. His name was Dadishu. And he ran this television station that beamed its satellite all the way from the San Joaquin Valley to the hills of Iraq. And he was trying to overthrow Saddam Hussein and get a chunk of Iraq to turn back into ancient Mesopotamia, the, the, the wow. empire of Assyria. And he was getting under the skin of Saddam Hussein so much that Saddam Hussein sent an assassin here to kill this guy. And the orders were to shoot him between the eyes. But I found him very much alive over there. Small guy, meticulous mustache, this thinning hair. He dyed, I think, a shade red. And he had these dark brooding eyes. And he told me, welcome to the Assyrian Empire in exile. And I said, well, tell me about Assyria. He says, well, we invented the first alphabet, the first calendar, and the concept of the number zero. Before the Greeks, before the Persians and the Romans and the Egyptians and the Jews and the Armenians, there were the Assyrians. We are before everybody, the Chinese too. We are the first empire of the world. I remember that, and I just quoted it because I called up that story today. This story, like you said in, before you read it, has a particular kind of relevance, not just to the Assyrians who remain, but to all of us. Yeah. You know, we started this series out with this notion that the urban roar had been turned into a whisper by COVID. Now with the killing of George Floyd and the protests that have come with that and the riots in the wake of those protests, the urban roar has come back. It's, it's roaring even more. So let's talk about the relevance of this story. 
Yeah. So one of the things that I find interesting is the the attitude of the barber, you know, Theodore Badal. And I love that name, Theodore Badal. It's self-poetic, you know, and yeah. uh, he basically is saying kind of what I'm thinking. And I, I got to tell you, you know, what I saw on that video of, with George Floyd, there, there's no doubt in my mind that's murder. That's 100 percent a murder. You know, it's, it's a lynching, you know, basically is what it is. And and I think that most people are in 100 percent agreement with that because they have eyes and because they can see what I'm concerned with. Because even just today, you know, I get on my social media and it's just flooded with images of violence and, and, and revolution and, 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 you know, people just being frustrated and upset and and these clashes between the establishment, between, you know, people who are sophisticated, as the story might say. And for those who have death in their eyes, not unlike Iowa from the story, it's amazing to me. And when we talk about Theodore Badal, one of the things that he says is, I just want to get over it. He wants to basically like forget that he's a Syrian, forget all of these accomplishments because it just hurts too much. And what I wonder is if we're not witnessing the end of our of our union. Civilizations come and go. You know, these empires come and go. I'm wondering if we're not witnessing the end of empire here in the States. And, you know, it's a very, it's kind of scary. I hope that, you know, I hope it's not a true revolution in the sense of like, we just end up where we are, but, you know, just roles are reversed. I hope it leads to some sort of, I, I, I hate to say it, this sounds terrible, but brotherhood of man, as Saroyan might put it. And so during those protests, when you see white, brown, you know, black and yellow and, you know, people unified, there's a lot of hope in that. That's what I'm praying for is that hope, you know, makes good. I hope it's not uh, co-opted by any corporate interests, which uh, unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of. You know, it's the language of Saroyan that I, I think we've kind of rediscovered as a poet. When you're reading him, tell me how that feels. Are you reading prose? Are you reading poetry? What is it? So one of the, you know, one of the things that I just love about Saroyan is that as I'm reading, I'm not picture reading a story. I mean, there is a narrative arc, although according to Saroyan, there's not much of a story there. (laughs) Right. But, But, you know, there is this narrative arc. But what I love about it is like the little Lego bits And by that, I mean like the little phrases that he puts in his sentences. I think one of the reasons why I'm drawn to his work is because it sounds like poetry. The uses of commas are basically line breaks the way that I understand them in contemporary poetry. The rhythm, the ebb and flow of the language. I mean, honestly, as I'm reading, I'm thinking this is a poem. And it's a stream of consciousness, kind of Allen Ginsberg and the beats kind of like tone and flow with no particular place to go, you know, meandering and yet dropping these gems of beauty along the way. Yeah, it's very poetic. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to his writing. You know, one of the things that Soroyan passed on to me as a kid, I didn't even know what the heck it meant back then, but was this idea that you write about what you know in the language that you know it. And even yeah. fiction is a combination of that. He wasn't bothered by, well, this is fiction, this is fact. It just all came together. You write about what you know in the language that you know it. And I think your poetry speaks to that as well. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of things I, I want to say about that. So the first one is, is there's this line from the story that I just love. And it says, I'm merely making a record. So if I wander around a little, it is because I am in no hurry and because I do not know the rules. And then he says, 
telling them in simple language things they already know. And I think that that's, that's honestly, I think that's writing for the people, for the masses, yeah. you know, for the ones who are going to benefit. I mean, I think about Iowa from the story. I think about uh, Japanese man, uh, Theodore Badal. You know, I think about these people and these people's stories are not going to be sung by anybody but someone like Soroyan, somebody with an eye for the specific, an eye for the details, an eye for the small things, including the people and their stories. And I just love the fact that he's so, he wants to name the people. And so when we talk about, you know, remember George Floyd, remember Breonna Taylor, remember Trayvon Martin, you know, we're invoking those names and they're not even with us anymore, but it's the idea of who they were on this earth and what they represent, not the establishment, not the sophisticated, but, you know, for the people. And I think that that's where Soroyan's coming from. And he does it with this great, fantastic style that almost makes it feel like, like if I didn't know any better, and maybe you can speak to this, Mark, but if I didn't know any better, I would think this was written in one sitting. And all the best writers have literature that it just feels like it just came so naturally and without effort. And, and I know better. I know good literature takes work, but I love the fact that the finished product is just this smooth, free-flowing, just like stream of consciousness, dreamlike story. Kenny, thank you so much for being with us today and reading 70,000 Assyrians. Mark and David, I just got to say, it's been such a pleasure to work with you both. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make it clear, this is my pleasure. This is like, I am so thankful for the opportunity to celebrate, you know, not only Soroyan's work and not only my, my brother and sisters from the Armenian community, but just the Central Valley. I guess it's kind of a cliche where we talk about Fresno and the, and, and the Valley and we talk about the richness of the diversity. That kind of sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher after a while, like, want, 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 want. But um, honestly, once you get into this literature, you can't help but feel a connectedness across communities. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is like an English teacher's point of view, but literature, the arts, you know, they're going to save us. So thank you for this opportunity. You're welcome. And, and thanks to Valley Public Radio for seeing the, the worth of doing all this. And thanks to Stanford for allowing us to use Soroyan stories. This has been the time of our life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bogdasarian and his first cousin and lifelong friend, William Soroyan. The melody is based on an Armenian folk song. Special thank you to Fresno writer Kenneth Chacon for reading and sharing his insight. Thanks to Mark Arax for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio News team. And special thank you to Mimi Coulter and Stanford Libraries, for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Alves. I'm gonna give you everything, everything, everything. Come on to my house.